Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. In this episode of Clets Heads, we're talking about bilingualism and autism. Researcher Philippe Prévost tells us about the latest research on the language development of autistic children growing up with more than one language. Our Clets Head of the Week is the 30-year-old Gemma, who grew up in an Ecuadorian family in New York. She tells us about navigating monolingual spaces as a bilingual, how her heritage language Spanish helped her tell a very personal story, and what being bilingual means to her. And once again, I'll share another Clets Head's Quick and Easy, a concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most out of the bilingualism in your family clinic or class. Keep listening to find out more. According to the World Health Organization, one in a hundred children have autism. Whilst exact numbers can vary depending on who's reporting them, where in the world you live and how autism is defined, this developmental disability is certainly not uncommon. In fact, in many places, the number of people living with autism is increasing. Autism is a spectrum which means that it's different for everybody. In this sense, it's very much like bilingualism. As we've spoken about on the podcast many times before, bilingualism is also characterised by variation. Some children hear the same language from both parents, others hear two languages from one parent and a third from the other. Some children know how to read and write in all their languages, others don't. Some children get to visit family and friends regularly where they can practise their heritage language whereas for others, this is impossible. As we'll hear from today's guest, all this variation can make doing research on the language development of autistic children growing up bilingually very challenging. So I'm afraid you're going to hear many times in this episode that we simply don't know the answer to some questions. We will, however, try to focus on what we do know and on answering some of the many questions parents, teachers and clinicians might have when it comes to bilingualism and autism. Autism affects how people relate to others, how they make sense of the world around them and how they communicate. And it's likely these problems with communication that raise questions about bilingualism in autistic children. Should you raise an autistic child with more than one language? Can autistic children who don't speak very much or or who don't speak at all become bilingual? What effect does being autistic have on a child's language development and is this any different for bilingual children? I'm going to put all of these questions and more to Philippe Prévost, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Tours in France and one of the few researchers working on this topic. Our conversation took place online, as usual, and at that very moment, Storm Polly was passing over the Netherlands, which means that you might hear rain drumming away on the window above me in the background. I started by asking Philippe what exactly autism is and what causes it. Autism Spectrum Disorder, uh, or ASD, uh, is a neurodevelopmental disorder. A neurodevelopmental disorder is a disorder that affects the development of the brain. And this can lead to greater or lesser difficulties 
in one or more cerebral functions, such as language, which is what we're going to be talking about today, um, also your senses, your emotions, etc. Um, autism itself, uh, since uh, we're going to be talking about autism, is diagnosed on the observation of two important uh, so-called dimensions. Yeah. One is uh, persistent deficits in social interaction and communication. So, for example, um, difficulties sharing interests with others or um, atypical eye contacts, um, atypical uh, body language. And the second dimension is um, restricted um, repetitive patterns of uh, behavior and also um, restricted interests and uh, activities. So, for example, um, an autistic person may have stereotyped speech or echolalia also, which is um, you know repeating words or uh, mm -hmm. phrases or sentences, sometimes uh, repeating um, the lyrics of songs. Um, it could be also repetitive motor uh, movements or uh, repetitive use of objects. And uh, so these are the two dimensions of autism. And in order for you or for the child to uh, receive a uh, diagnosis of autism, you have to show these two dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, what I just told you can occur in varying degrees of severity or yeah. intensity. And they can have greater or lesser impact on everyday life. So you can have people who uh, can go through normal school, can have uh, normal uh, sort of education. And you have others, on the other hand, that uh, need to be uh, uh, helped on a, on a daily basis. Um, and families actually cannot um, do it by themselves uh, and need to have services to um to do the job for them, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, so that's what it is. And uh, what causes it? Okay. What causes autism? Big question, of course. Um, well, we know that genetics plays an important role in, uh, in, uh, in autism. Um, and this can take the form of uh, abnormalities on some chromosomes, changes in some uh, genes or single genes. And you can see the involvement of uh, genetics when you look at twin studies in, in autism. So uh, especially when you look at identical twins, so twins that share most of their DNA mm -hmm. and their genes, if one twin uh, turns out to have autism, uh, then the chance for the other twin to also be autistic is extremely high, so uh, around 90%. And in contrast, if the twins are non-identical, so if they only share maybe part of their DNA, then the chances of a twin being autistic, if the other one is autistic, is much lower. Mm -hmm. uh, according to some studies, uh, the chances are between 25 to 40%. So genetics is involved. Yeah. But we also know <clears throat> that there are some risk factors of uh, autism uh, that are linked to the environment. Okay? Right. So for example... Uh, use of medication during pregnancy, so uh, things like uh, antidepressants, anti-epileptics, anti um, exposure to air pollution during pregnancy right. uh, may be uh, um, related to later development of, uh, of autism. Uh, prematurity also uh, is a risk factor. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear that, you know, that doesn't mean premature baby 
is going to become autistic, right? It's no. it just means you're you're more likely than a non a kid that goes full term. You are absolutely right. Thank you very much for making this clear. Yes, this is what we call risk factors. Risk factors that has to do just with you know, saying that it is more likely than, but it doesn't mean with certainty at yeah, all yeah, that yeah. you are going to become that, right? Yes. Yeah. One thing that is very interesting, I mean, a very promising area of research is what we call um, epigenetics. And that's the, um, the effects that the environment can have on genes, uh-huh. right? Um, and um, I think that it, it's very interesting because it, it brings together uh, the risk factors linked to the environment and what we know about genetics in, uh, in autism. So there's much to be done uh, in that area. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, maybe one thing, uh, la- one last thing that um, I would like to make clear, there is no scientific evidence um, suggesting that autism is related to vaccination. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay, so one of the key characteristics of autism is these difficulties with communication, right? So we'll get to bilingualism soon, but let's just okay. talk uh, more more generally. So um, focusing on what we know about language development in autistic children who are learning one language, because there's obviously more work on that. Um, so to what extent does the language development differ for autistic children than for children without autism? So either neurotypical children or with other uh, neurotypical yeah. disorders? Yes. Uh, well, as you said before, in fact, um, the key word about autism in general, but also about language abilities uh, in children with autism, is variability. Yeah. And in fact, uh, autistic individuals, uh, autistic children, they differ as to which areas of language uh, are affected and to what degree they're affected. Uh, Maybe I should start by saying that one of the language domains that is um, most affected in autism is what we call pragmatics. Maybe a broad definition could be use of language uh, in context or in everyday life. Um, But maybe I should give you an example to make it more real, so to speak. So imagine that... um, uh, you have a conversation with someone. Obviously, there's a lot of information that is transmitted to the other person without being explicitly expressed. You know, your body language uh, and also some some expressions, the way you uh, prosody, the way you talk, uh, intonation, etc. So let me give you a concrete uh, example. Imagine you ask someone, um, hey, have you met my parents? And the other person answers, uh, well, I've met your mother. You understand or you can um, infer from that that indeed uh, the mother has been met, but the person hasn't, hasn't met your father. And, and the idea is that if the person had met the father, that person would have said it. Okay. Yes, yeah. I have met them. Right. Yeah. Uh, instead, the person says, um, well, I've met your mother, and you think, okay, so he has or she has only met the mother. This implicit information that we can guess as neurotypical, um, that uh, maybe people with autism have difficulties uh, with, with uh, everything that is implicit, uh, knowing exactly what we mean, this is quite uh, this is quite a challenge for them. So anything that is non-literal, so uh, yes, humor, irony. They also may have difficulties 
with managing a conversation uh, in terms of knowing when it's your turn to speak. Also, the fact that uh, uh, you and I know, um, and it's quite, quite amazing, actually, that we should know that. We know that when we talk to each other, uh, when it's your turn to speak, you should follow up on the same topic. Uh, you're not going to change the topic of the conversation. Yeah. And so that's that's a, a key characteristic of language development, at least in uh, varying degrees of autistic uh, people, autistic children. Are there other areas where autistic children might experience problems or challenges? Yeah, 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 uh, completely. What we know is that a number of uh, autistic individuals have also what we call language impairment. This is not pragmatics. Uh, this corresponds to difficulties with, for example, putting words together to form sentences, so yeah. what we call syntax, yeah. uh, putting th- sounds together to form syllables, what we call phonology. We don't know how many children, in fact, are in- impacted by that. I mean, some studies uh, go as far as saying that half of autistic children that have language also have language impairment. But we don't know. It could be it could be less than that. But what we do know is that um, language impairment affects what we call complexity. So um, the more a sentence or a syllable is complex, the more difficulties uh, children with language impairment will have. For example, if you put a sentence inside uh, another sentence, so what we call um, um, an embedded clause. Uh, you increase complexity. So uh, you could say, for example, the doctor saw a patient today. So that's a pretty simple sentence. Um, But you can make it more complex by adding something else. You could say, my friend knows that the doctor saw a patient today. And all of a sudden, the sentence, of course, is longer. But uh, you can see that the clause is inserted into another clause. And that makes the sentence uh, more complex can give you an, an example with syllables if you want. Um, so a syllable uh, includes a vowel and uh, you can include also one or more consonants. And some syllables are more complex than others. So if I give you the syllable ka, um, where you have a consonant, k, and a vowel, a, uh, this is less complex than, uh, for example, kla, where you have two consonants, yeah. or cap, where you have two consonants, okay? Kids with autism and language impairment will have difficulties with complex syllables and with complex um, um, sentences uh, as well. Yeah, and and so some of the things you've mentioned are also things that we know, you know, for example, the last thing that you mentioned about, uh, you know, complexity of the sounds, we also know that that's something developmentally, right? Children, neurotypical monolingual and bilingual children uh, also reduce the complexity of the sounds that they say, right? So they might say car instead of kla. If you want to know more about language impairment or developmental language disorder, listen to episode three of the first season of Clet's Heads. There we answer the question, how do you know if a bilingual child has a language delay? You'll find a link in the show notes. So we've spoken about then you know, the characteristics of language development in autistic children. How might autism affect or potentially affect bilingual language development? We know of cases that are just exceptional. So we know that 
um, some autistic ch uh, children or let's say individuals um, manage to develop more than one language. And maybe one, um, one of the fam most famous cases is uh, someone called Christopher, mm -hmm. um, who's been studied in the 1990s. Uh, so this is a person who has autism, and he has a very special talent, which is learning languages. Um, and so he's able to understand, he's able uh, to speak and read and write more than 20 languages, right? Wow. Or about 20 languages. But what's interesting in his case is that he enjoyed learning languages for the sake of learning them. He was interested in the linguistic systems. He was interested in the grammar rules. He was interested in translation. So it shows that, yes, autistic uh, individuals may be able to learn more than one language, but then they may not be interested in uh, learning these, uh, these languages for communication, mainly because they didn't learn these languages through social interactions. In the case of Christopher, uh, he learned these uh, languages from books. Um, we, we have also knowledge of um, other cases um, of children uh, learning a second language through watching television, videos on social media, so autistic children learning these languages, and even preferring speaking these languages uh, at home with their parents, even though the parents don't speak the language. Some people have put the idea that maybe some uh, autistic children are able to, in fact, focus so much on the details. In fact, their interest is going to be language. They are very much interested in cracking the system, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the attention to details allow them to um, make, uh, you know, sort of uh, figuring out the rules of the language, how the words are pronounced. And this is this is quite um, this is quite fascinating. The fact that they can figure out the language just by exposure to TV and uh, and and videos, this is uh, something that needs to be explained. We're going to leave our conversation with Philippe now to listen to another Clets Heads quick and easy concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most out of the bilingualism in your family class or clinic. Clet's heads, quick and easy. Raising, teaching or treating a bilingual child is usually not something you do alone. Ideally, you do it as a team, as a parent with your partner and wider family, as a professional with your colleagues, or with the child's parents, and in many cases also with the child too. But sometimes not everyone is on the same page. Maybe your partner thinks differently about bilingual parenting than you do, or your school board has a different take on how best to educate bilingual students, or maybe the parents of a bilingual child in your clinic see things differently from you. These are topics we often prefer to avoid rather than discuss, but that conversation is necessary if we want to make a success of the bilingualism for the children in our midst. So our Clets Heads quick and easy for today is to have that conversation. Whether it's your partner, your parents or friends, your colleague or your child, talk to them about the one topic that's been bothering you for ages and make sure you can move forward together. Clets Heads quick and easy. Philippe has told us how some autistic children and adults can be exceptional language learners. 
And in this sense, the language development of autistic children, or at least some autistic children, may be different from that of neurotypical children. But what about autistic children who do not fall into this category? If you're raising a bilingual child and your child receives an autism diagnosis, what does this mean for their bilingualism? I asked Philippe what we know about the language development of autistic children growing up bilingually. There are interesting studies um, that um, compare bilingual children with autism to monolingual children with autism. And generally, these uh, studies, um, well, they tend to to, um, conclude that the two groups of children do not Mm -hmm. differ. In other words... Uh, that the language of uh, kids with uh, with autism uh, that grow up in a bilingual context is not affected with respect to monolinguals. So, for example, people have studied so-called milestones of mm. language development. So these are sort of um, different phases that uh, we have well identified throughout uh, throughout the years. So, for example, in neurotypicals, uh, you know, the age of first word generally right before the age of one or the age of first sentence, about the age of two or or a little before. So when you look at autistic children, monolingual children with autism tend to have a delayed language emergence. So, And actually, that's one of the first reasons why families actually go and uh, consult with a therapist because um, they're worried about uh, the language of of their children. And so... Uh, in monolingual children with autism, we uh, we observe, uh, for example, the age of first word at age two instead of age one, and the first sentence at age three instead mm-hmm. of age two. So now when you compare uh, bilingual children uh, that have autism with uh, monolingual children that have autism, well, what you see is that the milestones uh, of the bilingual children uh-huh. are the same uh, as the, uh, the ones uh, of the monolingual. So there is no further delay uh, in language development in the bilingual uh, autistic children. So indeed, their first word will, like the monolinguals, appear at age two in, in uh, on average, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and age three for the the first phrases yeah. or first sentences. So there seems to be um, to be uh, yes a, a lack of impact of bilingualism in the sense that uh, bilingualism you may think may delay the uh, the emergence of language this is not uh, this is not the case okay um, what we have also found um, bilingual children that have autism and also language impairment when you look at the errors that these children make so for example we, we mentioned earlier complex sentences right um, so, for example, saying ka yeah. instead of kla. Okay? So, bilingual uh, children that have autism and language impairment, when they make mistakes, they're pretty similar to the mistakes or errors that monolingual children with autism yeah. uh, tend to make. So, it's not the case that they start making uh, errors that are completely yeah. different. And that that tells us something that tells us that uh, okay monoly- uh, the fact of raising a child in a bilingual way does not exacerbate uh, the type of the errors um, maybe um, there would be more errors what we call quantity of errors but at least the errors are not going to be different than the errors that uh, that monolinguals uh, make would need obviously to be proven by by other studies 
it seems to be a very uh, interesting, uh, interesting yeah. result. I think that's really important, right? Because it shows to the extent that the language development of autistic children may differ from the language development of neurotypical children, that any differences, so far at least, seem to be the same for whether the children are growing up with one language or whether they're growing up with two. Some of the results um, are, I find, more solid yeah. than others. Definitely the ones on the milestones seem to be... Um, Seems to be uh, seem to be on the right uh, on the right track. And I think also just one other thing that cropped up in my uh, mind when you were saying that, and I think that's also important to say is you know because of all this individual variation, you know we're talking about all these different groups as though they're very discrete groups, right? Uh, and that they all behave the same way. They're monolingual children with autism. We know there's a lot of variation. We should probably see this more of like a, a sliding scale uh, for bilingualism. People. In the research world, think of that more these days as a continuum from being very bilingual to being not so bilingual. Yeah, completely. You're absolutely right, Sharon. And this is why, actually, I, maybe I, I, I caution the uh, your listeners a lot about well research. Uh, we, you know, we don't know and everything. That's because there are so many combinations of factors possible that whatever is found on a group or subgroup of individuals may only apply to that subgroup mm. of individuals uh, and depending also on the way they were tested and assessed but uh, you know you um, you need to include in your in your studies more children that may have language impairment more children that are minimally verbal uh, in order to see how this um, sort of continuum also of abilities plays out uh, with respect to your continuum of um, language exposure and, and, and bilingual uh, bilingualism factors in general. What's interesting is that when you look at bilingual children with autism and language impairment, it seems that the, um, the exposure doesn't play such a role, such an important role. So it seems that even though they are going to be exposed to the language, the fact that they have language impairment um, means that, in fact, they're not going to benefit so much from the, uh, from the exposure. And we know that from, from other um, disorders, so um, developmental language disorder, for yeah. example, um, the fact of being exposed to more than, uh, to, be, to have more exposure is not going to help the child, I mean, to the same extent, let's say, than uh, than children or as children that uh, that develop typically. Right. So, you know, there's a lot that we don't know, right? Because it's really yes. complex. It's a complex situation, and and this is an emerging field of research. And part of the complexity is that you've uh, many autistic children also have uh, language impairments like developmental language disorder, and so it's hard to disentangle. You know, when you look at their language development what is reflecting the fact that they have autism or and what reflects the fact that they have a language impairment. Is that a reasonable summary of, of where we're at? Sure, yes. Um, this, is, this is a good summary indeed. Um, I think that when you look at uh, the studies that have, been done, that have uh, appeared on the topic of uh, bilingual language development in autism, few of them actually look at uh, language impairment. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, and to us, this is something that should be uh, addressed. 
Because we know, I mean, I, I told you the uh, the prevalence of language impairment in autistic children. Some people say that fifty as 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 high as fifty percent of autistic children have language impairment. If it's the same for bilingual children with autism, uh, then we need to be able to um, factor in, in in the studies the fact that some of the children um, may have language impairment. So we have to find a way for this population to disentangle, indeed, uh, difficulties that may be related to language impairment, yeah. but also to, for example, insufficient uh, language exposure or um, you know, insufficiently qualitative language exposure. Um, and then you factoring also um, autism um, symptoms uh, is the fact that uh, being uh, autistic sort of make it... Um, Make it a third factor, so to speak, in the in the um, in the language development of these children. Yeah, other things that we definitely do not yet know from research on bilingualism and autism, because sometimes it's good to point that out too, right? Because uh, you know people make make claims about well anything and everything, and yet the scientific base for those claims is you know shaky at best. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, it's very important to to make it clear what we don't know. And I'm afraid that in this particular topic, uh, there are many things that we don't know. So I, but g- let me give you an example. We talked about the factors that may impact on language development in bilingual contexts. So for yeah. example, and, and, and things you've, you've talked about in your podcast, I'm sure. So language exposure, uh, quality of exposure, age of onset, the fact of, uh, you know, learning, um, starting learning a language early or or later, we don't know so much the impact of those um, those factors mm-hmm. on language development in bilingual children, simply because they haven't been really um, investigated. A lot of studies, for example, look at um, children that are uh, um, simultaneous bilingual, so that learn or that are exposed to the two languages from birth. There are not that many studies that look at uh, children who are exposed to the second language later. So, for example, um, when, when, when they, they go, go to school, to, or to school, yeah. they're able to go to school. Yes. Yeah. So it's difficult to um, it's difficult to tell. Yeah. Um, and as I said uh, before about language impairment, so we don't know really how uh, this can be uh, identified. And maybe the last thing that. Um, maybe one group or subgroup of children that we haven't talked about yet, um, children that are called uh, minimally verbal. So children who have, who have autism, yeah. but somehow do not manage to develop language beyond a few words or uh-huh. phrases or um, echolalia. Um, we don't know. First of all, we don't know what they know about, uh, about language because they, by definition, um, their production of language is very reduced, very limited. Um, and what we don't know, uh, in addition to that, is what happens to them or to their language or language development when they are exposed to another language mm-hmm. on top of the home language. Um, I have um, no idea, uh, and, and, and research certainly has not much to say about this yet, um, but it could be that um, you know they're able to to get some comprehension at least of both languages or not. Um, so 
I'm afraid that this uh, awaits further, yeah. further studies and further research. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so plenty of research still to be done, but let's um, let's try and give some answers to the parents and and uh, teachers and maybe clinicians who are listening. You do hear, and I have also, you know, heard personally of parents of autistic children who are growing up in a bilingual situation, who have been told that they can better stop using the heritage language or the minority language with their child and switch to the majority language, so the, usually the language spoken at school. What should parents do when they get that kind of advice? Yes. Um, I mean, this is a very tough situation for any parents to uh, to be in. And and actually, you know, this is, I'm going, I mean, obviously we're talking about autism, but it is not the only context in which, or bilingual context in which parents uh, can hear this no no of uh, course and we've spoken about that um, several times on the podcast you know parents yeah. being told stop talking speaking a language yeah so my inclination uh would be to uh, you know as as not sure this is always going to be possible but uh i would say that uh, parents should um ignore these uh this this advice um i know that we don't know much about uh, language development in bilingual children with autism but in autism yes yeah. sorry yeah um but let's consider the uh, the consequences of a family um you know being told to to ignore uh, or to drop um the home language uh, yeah. for example yeah um this will have tremendous consequences for the for the child i mean um um especially if the if the parents don't have um, fluent command of the majority language how are they to communicate with uh, with uh, with a with the autistic child mm-hmm. um how is the autistic child supposed to develop its own identity um its own cultural identity linguistic um, identity it's it's hard. How can he even communicate with the uh, with his extended family? Uh, his uh, how can he um, live in his within this community if uh, if uh, the family is told to drop uh, to drop a language? So um, yeah. So so basically, all the reasons why uh, you shouldn't drop a heritage language if you're raising a child bilingually, your child is neurotypical. They also hold for if you're raising a bilingual child and your child has autism. Um, exactly. I mean, the the, the consequences um, for the for the well-being of the family of the child um, to me are too. It's, this is this would be too much for the child uh, yeah. and the family. Uh, too negative uh, consequences. So, if the concern of the clinician or the professional is that uh, the child should get more. Uh, exposure to the majority language, mm-hmm. then maybe um, the family can try to multiply the contexts in which, in which the child, the autistic child, is going to get access to the majority language through activities um, of different types, um, but um, not by dropping the uh, the home language. Yeah, um, yeah. So, are there circumstances then under which you should? not raise an autistic child bilingually? Uh, this is a tough one. Um, and <laughs> I'm not sure I can give you a, a, a definite answer on this. I well, mean, this, what would you say if, uh, you know, 
a parent asks you that I, question? I, I would, I would um, I mean, in relationship, in relation to what we just said, dropping a language may have very negative consequences mm. uh, on the family, on the child. There could be some exceptional um, circumstances, um, let's say a combination of uh, maybe the child being uh, minimally verbal and having, for example, um, developmental intellectual uh, disorder, mm -hmm. um, combination of uh, hurdles, so to speak. But even that, I you know this is just from the top of my head i uh, this is not based on any um evidence that um that i could find in, uh, yeah. in studies so uh, so it's difficult to you know my, my general my general inclination would be to keep the uh the languages and especially the home language certainly uh, i'm afraid that i cannot think of all different circ circumstances there may be some where indeed um, this is going to be uh, this is going to be too much. Yeah. But we have to be careful. You have to be careful. Dropping one language is one solution, but uh, you know it has consequences. As we yeah, said. yeah. And so um, I think it's important to make clear as well that if I understand you correctly, Philippe, there's there's no evidence showing that raising an autistic child bilingually is going to uh, exacerbate any issues that they might have relating to the autism. Is that right? Uh, yes. I mean, that's this is what the, um, I mean, the literature, I mean, the studies tend to say that, uh, yes, go ahead. Um, you know, bilingualism does not have um, any negative effect uh, on language development in, in uh, children with autism. This may be true, but um, we need more research to uh, confirm this, right? In the meantime, what do we do, right? Um, what do we do with the home language, especially? Based on what we know in other disorders, in other situations, maybe keeping the home language is, uh, is not a bad idea. Uh, and dropping the home uh, language, as we said, uh, yeah, can lead to further issues, yeah, maybe quite severe. Yeah, and the question is whether it actually is a solution to what, well, whatever the problem is that it's supposed to be solving, right? Um, no, um, exactly. And one thing actually that we could say, I mean, children with autism uh, have difficulties with uh, communication and with social interaction. So they are the risk of them, the the risk for them to be isolated is extremely high. We know that. Isolation, social isolation, um, is something that many, many uh, individuals with autism feel. So imagine what's what's going to happen if um, in your in your own family you're going to drop the home language. This will lead to even more isolation, right? And and I'm not sure this is what we want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Before we wrap up our conversation with Philippe, it's time to hear from our Clet Said of the week. Let's head off the week. My name is Gemma. I am 30 years old. I live in Queens, New York, and I speak English and Spanish. Welcome, Gemma. You're our first guest from New York. Um, so you were raised bilingually. Can you tell me about how you heard uh, your two different languages when growing up? 
Yes. So <clears throat> I was raised in Queens, New York, and I was raised by my Ecuadorian family. And since I'm first generation, they had a really hard time grasping the English language, so they refused to assimilate. And I had no choice but to learn Spanish, otherwise I could have not ever communicated with them. Uh -huh. Now, I spoke in Spanish at home, and then during the day when I began school, I would learn English. So simultaneously, I feel that in my existence, I never was not, you know, bilingual. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when, when, when did you first hear English then? When I was five years old. Okay. Prior to that, I had only conceptualized reality in Spanish. Uh-huh. And, uh, and now, now that you're a uh, grown up, what, how do you use your two languages? Every single day. Um, obviously when I communicate with my partner, she's monolingual, so only in English, but then with, you know, my extended family, I speak with them in Spanish, my friends, I have used Spanish since I began working in my professional career. Um, with music, um, I just am consistently interacting, you know, with the two languages. Or in Spanish, there's a nice phrase that says, vivir entre dos mundos, to live between both worlds. Uh -huh. So do you feel you live between both worlds or in both worlds? You know what? You're right. I'm definitely in both worlds. Yeah, yeah. And and what does it mean to you then to be bilingual? So I would say that being bilingual to me just, you know, really encompasses the both cultures that I grew up with, you know, growing up, um, having access to my Ecuadorian culture and then growing up here also, you know, loving American culture itself. So it means embracing these two cultures and um, embracing the innovation that both of them have created, whether it's you know, through the arts or literature. So I would say that, you know, it means living within both of those worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And and you said you, you use Spanish also in your professional life. So uh, what, what do you do? Well, I am an aspiring translator. So I definitely use it a lot. Um, right now, I have this little nonprofit um, group that I co-founded with my professor and some other students at uh, John Jay. It's called Traducciones contra el Racismo, or Translations Against Racism in English. Uh -huh. And translate content on social media to spread anti-racist messages so Spanish-speaking communities would be able to understand more the nuances of racism. So that is a way that I utilize um, uh -huh. my bilingual. Ah, cool. You said you, you use both languages, both, uh, you know, every day. Do you feel a particular affinity to one language or is it one that you prefer to speak most or is it really for you not much of a difference or context dependent, I guess? Yeah, so <clears throat> I would say that I do have an affinity more for English and I believe um, it's English because I spent so much of uh, my waking hours, you know, whether it was in school, university, and everything was in English. And even though I did acquire um, Spanish at home, it was interesting that over two decades, I didn't really write it or read it. I just spoke it. But then until I began to major in translation is when I actually studied it academically. So I only have, I would say, just a few years really immersed in Spanish in that way. Uh-huh. And so how did you learn to uh, read and write in Spanish then? Um, basically, when I went to the university, obviously, I knew, you know, <clears throat> I had a really good grasp of it. But when I decided to study it at the university, that's when I had um, a more deeper understanding and I began to read it more and was more exposed to it, I would say, on a more academic level. 
Yeah, yeah. And um, looking back then uh, now, do you feel like, you know, you wish you'd learned to read and write earlier? Or do you think, well, you know, I had the advantage when I went to university, I could always speak, already speak Spanish so well, then it made it so much easier for me to learn how to read and write? Or um, I would say that I wish I knew it earlier then. I think it would have been more advantageous at an earlier age because then I probably would have had a stronger grasp on it now. Obviously, you're never done learning a language. There's no, no, no of it. But honestly, I wish um, that I would have picked it up sooner just so because I would have been able to have more um, in-depth conversations with more loved ones that I feel like when I was younger, um, I just, I didn't because I was a little limited in the in my proficiency in Spanish. Uh-huh. So that's also spoken Spanish then as well? or mm-hmm. <clears throat> When I was much younger, there were so many words that, you know, um, I can obviously pronounce today that back then I had just such a difficulty because it wasn't a part of my vocabulary. But do you think that's something that's just part and parcel of growing up no matter what language you you use and that you get to know more complicated words as you get older yeah I mean it also I think it depends um you know how much someone is reading right in said language Mm -hmm. and how much Mm -hmm. they're exposed to it during the day and as you know as a child and even as an adult I was mostly exposed to English you know even though at home and with my friends I did use Spanish that is a limited amount of time compared to existing in the United States and doing everything in English, television, you know, schoolwork, media, everything just being consumed in that language. Uh And what about communicating with your Ecuadorian family now? Which language do you use? To what extent do you only use Spanish? Because you said you, you, uh, you grew up only, only speaking Spanish with them, but has that changed over time? No, they, uh, they still don't really know English so mostly in Spanish only in Spanish actually yeah and and um do you have children yourself no I don't have children if you were to have them have you thought about what language you might use to speak to them in both English and Spanish I would not want them to be monolingual I think that you know monolingual also um, may limit their experiences of the world rather than knowing two languages and they'd be able to have more exposure to human innovation. Uh huh. Tell me a bit more about um, your experiences as a what what we would call in the research literature a heritage language speaker, right? Somebody who grew up speaking a heritage language, Spanish in your case, and then you went and went to university, and and then did you study Spanish or? I did. I studied Spanish translation and interpretation. So how is that then? Because I'm sure many parents who are listening will be curious to hear what the experiences of somebody who, you know, essentially could be their kid and I don't know, however many years, um, how it is then to go and, you know, study that, uh, the language that you grew up with and but weren't schooled in until then. Yeah, well, it was um, a very difficult experience because, you know, I have never done that before. So there was a lot to learn. And I think what was the most difficult um, is the fact that I study translation. <laughs> it's not just like studying the language itself, but also just conveying, um, you know, a text in uh, from English to Spanish and making sure that I transferred the meaning, uh, the tone of the text and its cultural, you know, um, nuances that it contained. So it was a difficult experience, but I honestly do think that if a person decides to be, you know, bilingual or even trilingual, translation would be one of the methods that would, I would say, make it easier to acquire language. Uh Uh-huh. 
Do you feel like it's actually helped? Yes, it definitely did. Yeah, especially interpretation because translation is verbal and interpretation is oral. So when you are interpreting, you you know it's so much that you're doing cognitively. You're receiving the information in one language and then you have to say it out in another language and make sure that you know it makes sense and that you're conveying um, the information that was processed. Yeah, it's pretty high pressure, right? I remember. So I studied French and German as a, in the mm-hmm. UK where I grew up. And um, I remember the interpretation classes where our teacher would say something in French and then suddenly say somebody's name and you had to interpret it. And you're always like, oh, no, not me, not me. Um, And it's just really, uh, it's just so fast paced. It puts you on the spot, right, to see Mm. how much the language because sometimes sometimes you forget a word in one language so then when you're interpreting you might just have to find a way to describe um that idea if you don't know the equivalent right away yeah well that happens i don't know about you but that happens to me quite a lot forgetting uh, a word and certainly in english i sometimes i find it more easy to speak uh, dutch than i do english to be honest <laughs> with me sometimes i'll just i mean i imagine it's happened to you too i'll just forget the word in both languages. Oh yeah, that happens too. Um, so you were telling me just before we started the recording about you'd done some writing in Spanish whilst you were at university. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, about your experience? Yes, of course. So I wrote an essay a few years ago. Uh, basically the essay is about the evolution of my coming out story, coming out to my parents, their evolution of you know accepting me and where they are today and where I am with what happened. Uh So I wrote this essay in Spanish and I submitted it, um, you know, to my professor for one of my finals and they were, he was really impressed and he had suggested that I submitted into a contest. There was a writing contest at John Jay for the English department and they have uh, this journal that's called John Jay's Finest. Mm -hmm. My professor told me that She's going to submit my essay in Spanish, that that would be the first time that an essay would be published in Spanish in that English journal, but to also translate it. And I won. And my essay was the first one published in Spanish. And I would not be able to have done that without being bilingual, Mm -hmm. without knowing Spanish and having lived those experiences because my experiences with what happened also derived from me growing up in a South South American household and then speaking that language, and every cultural nuances, you know, that came with that. Mm-hmm. To what extent did, did being able to write that story in, in Spanish change or affect or influence what the, what the story actually was? Do you, do you know what I mean? Honestly, now that I think about it right now, there was no other way but to write it in Spanish because mm-hmm. that was my lived experience at home and being exposed to, you know, prejudices, right, growing up that are so prevalent in that culture. So there was no other way to actually write it, but within that language and using the exact words that I heard, especially, you know, because when I came out, I was in Ecuador. And in the essay, I describe, you know, where I am. I describe, you know, the origin of where my family is from. So I feel that because I wrote it in Spanish, it made it even more powerful. Mm -hmm. Cool. Will you, uh, is it accessible, the story, like online? It is. You can just, um, I guess, Google John Jay's Finest 2022. We can put a we can we can put a link in the show notes if people are interested and want to read it. You hear different stories about the status of Spanish in the U.S. What has your experience been like as a speaker of Spanish? 
Well, you know, I think uh, growing up where I did, I grew up in a really small neighborhood where it was really, you know, a lot of Latinos who a lot of people spoke Spanish. In school, uh, you know, it was never really present. I only really was exposed to it um, at the university. But I, I do see that right now it is more encouraging to, you know, have that bilingual education, which I think was great. It definitely was something that I did not see growing up. And I think as I did grow up, I did see there was more prejudices against, you know, speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, um, seems a little ludicrous to me since it is the second most like spoken language in the world. So were you allowed to speak Spanish at school or I mean, or was it just an unspoken rule or was it actually a rule that you weren't allowed to speak Spanish? It was, I would say, a more unspoken rule. You would just know not to do that. You would know that there would be a reaction. You know, I think um, as a person that grew up here, I knew that there are certain spaces where um I would, you know, not speak Spanish, especially, you know, living, even though I live in the city, if I go to certain rural places, right, of New York, I would not speak Spanish. Uh Uh-huh. What kind of effect do you think it would have had if that hadn't been the case, right? If you were able to, for example, use your Spanish to uh, discuss with your classmates the the answer to a question or uh, use Spanish to chat to people or, I don't know, use Spanish when learning French or something. I think if I did not have that limitation, I would have been able to know different parts of my, you know, culture, know different individuals and just would have probably had different access to different resources. Um, For some reason, the one thing that keeps coming to my mind is if I was, you know, um, not put the limitation on me, I think my family would have had access to more research, you know, more resources as a child, since I was the only one that spoke English in that household, I was expected to be the interpreter and translator. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was like nine or 10 years old reading these really complex, you know, um, government documents that I did not have the capability to, you know, translate. And I think it would have made my life much easier. And I definitely would have felt more comfortable because I think because I knew this language I felt like an outcast for a really long time well that's interesting I think we're going to leave it there thank you ever so much for spending some time with us today from uh, New York Um, it's been really interesting to hear about your experiences growing up with Spanish and English oh thank you for having me it's been a pleasure let's head off the week One final question, and that's about um, any kind of, you know, therapy. For example, speech and language therapy that um, uh, some autistic children uh, might need. Um, to the extent that they have a choice, which language can clinicians best use during therapy within a bilingual autistic child? Okay, uh, okay. So I get from your question that. You're talking about a situation uh, where there's actually a choice, right, in the in the language of therapy, because this is not. Yeah, maybe it's an un, yeah, yeah unrealistic question, to be honest. Um, no, because we uh, so we we do a lot of work, uh, a lot of collaboration with um, countries like Lebanon, so countries that are by definition bilingual, yeah, and there the. Um, the recommendations are um, that therapy should um, address the, the 
all the languages of the child, let's say the two languages of the child, mm -hmm. right? And this is possible in countries like that because most, if not all, speech language uh, therapists uh, will uh, speak the two languages. Right. Uh, but even in those situations, it's not really clear. So you've probably talked in your podcast about the fact that even though a child um, has more than one language, there may be one language that is stronger than the other yeah, right? yeah, yeah. or more dominant, yeah. right? So even in, in bilingual countries, uh, speech and language therapists sometimes um, detect a language which is stronger uh, in a child and may decide, in fact, to restrict uh, therapy to that strong language. Right. Um, so um, this is a matter of uh, defining, uh, also defining um, uh, what is strong and weaker in terms of your of your languages. But practices may differ uh, even in those uh, even in those countries. And as to monolingual countries like France, um, well, I mean. Speech and language therapists uh, will speak French, and uh, there's no way that you can find, uh, or it's going to be very difficult to find speech and language therapists that speak that may speak the other language of the uh, of the child. So you may find um, speech and language therapists that um, speak English, but they may not speak um, Turkish. Uh, uh, Urdu or any other yeah, language, whatever the language that you can yeah. find in the country, right? Yeah. So they would be restricted to to providing uh, therapy to uh, to the to the to the children in uh, in French, and actually maybe this is where the advice that sometimes some families hear from therapists come from. I mean, the fact that they deliver therapy in one language. Mm -hmm. They may think that well, then it's best to for the child to only hear that language, uh, including at home, right? To multiply um, exposure, so with the idea of maybe boosting the language skills of these children. Um, but uh, as we said, um, this this can be uh, a little bit a little bit uh, complicated. Yeah, um, yeah, and you could probably try and find other sources of that language to boost the language development. Because, I mean, you know, it makes sense, right, if that's the language that they're having therapy in and the therapy sure, is yeah. needed for a purpose. So it does make sense, but no reason yeah. to drop drop the other language. I think exactly. that's maybe a, a good uh, a good place to finish then. Okay. So uh, thank you, Philippe, for sharing what we do know and telling us more about what we don't know and hopefully what we will know soon uh, once uh, you and your colleagues have uh, completed some more research. Well, thank you, Sharon. Um, I should say that uh, we are continuing doing research on this topic. This is extremely important. We do this with colleagues uh, in other countries and uh, we are very much um, interested and uh, we we need to we need to find answers, yeah, uh, for research. I mean, to understand how language works, how bilingualism works, but also to help uh, clinicians, uh, professionals, and families to make the best informed decisions about language practice. Thanks to Philippe for sharing his insights from the research on bilingualism and autism. In today's episode, we learned that it's perfectly possible for autistic children to grow up bilingually. 
And as for neurotypical children, it's important to think about the consequences of deciding to drop a language. As always, whatever choice you make as a parent is entirely up to you. What we care about here at Clets Heads is that the choices you make are informed ones. As Philippe noted several times during our conversation, much more research is needed. This research should include the bilingual families with autistic children, examining not only their language skills, but also how language is used. Another important topic is what it means for children's identity to be both bilingual and autistic. If you want to hear more on the topic of bilingualism and autism, including the lived experience of an autistic person who grew up bilingually, then I recommend the episode of the Much Language Such Talk podcast on this very topic. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back in a month with an episode on complementary schools or heritage language education, as it's called in some parts of the world. What effect does attending these schools have on children's language development and their cultural identity? What other benefits are there? And are there benefits for parents as well as children? Researcher Lyal Hussein will give us the answers. Until then. If you want to know more about Clets Heads, go to our website at kletsheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Clets Heads using your favourite podcast app. If you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with them. You can do this via the website or in your podcast app. And if you're on social media, we'd love it if you followed us. Our handle is at Klet's Heads. Thanks for listening and until the next time. Or as we say in Dutch, till the volgende keer.